Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson-Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. We're continuing something new in this new year where we've started a podcast focused on the research, advocacy, and policies impacting public school superintendents. Guests will include superintendents, researchers, advocates, policymakers, and other folks doing interesting things in the field. And if we do this right, with each episode, you'll learn something new and hopefully come away thinking of some of these issues in a new light. Each episode is a new topic from a different angle. We'll talk federal, state, and local policies impacting superintendents and public education. We'll talk advocacy. We'll bring in folks to discuss new and interesting research and emerging trends in the field and any other topic we think you might want to hear about. If you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at n-e-l-l-e-r-s-o-n at aasa.org or on Twitter at Noellerson. All shows will be available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Our third episode, which you'll hear next, is with Federal Communications Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel. She's a fearless female advocate working at the FCC on myriad issues related to telecommunications and connectivity. But for purposes near and dear to our hearts, she is a tireless advocate for all things specific to connectivity that impact our nation's students. And this includes the obvious programs like E-Rate, which almost single-handedly transformed connectivity in our nation's schools over the last 20 years, but also the emerging and more pressing issue of the consistency of connectivity for students outside of schools with things like access at home and the homework app. I'm very excited that she's able to join us today. I think you'll really appreciate her insights and perspective and experiences with her history with the program. And just talking through some of the things I know that we will hit on as we go through our conversation in the next 30 minutes or so. I really enjoyed this conversation as an opportunity to highlight some of the goings on at the Federal Communications Commission, which doesn't always jump to the front of your mind when you think education policy, so that you can showcase another way that this education policy plays out and impacts you, even if it is over at the FCC. Thank you for listening. Jessica Rosenworcel serves as a commissioner with the Federal Communications Commission, and in that role is a leader on the program critical to the nation's public schools, E-Rates. E-Rate represents the fourth largest stream of federal funding in our nation's schools and is critical to helping our schools connect to and access high-speed broadband to support the teaching and learning that is critical to their mission. Thank you, Commissioner, for being here today, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Noel. So, jumping right in, I wanted to start with a real top-level question. E-Rate okay. just turned 20. You celebrated 20 years of E-Rate last year. And one of my favorite facts about you, Commissioner, is how closely your career has developed and progressed almost in parallel to the E-Rate program, including working with the grandfather of the program, Senator Jay Rockefeller. Can you share with our listeners your long professional relationship with E-Rate? Oh, absolutely. It's always a treat to talk about E-Rate because it's not just 20 years old, it's had 20 years of being the nation's largest education technology program. And I think it's amazing that it's been around this long, because if you think about 20 years ago, I don't know, I had an AOL account and dial-up internet was like a cool thing. And at that time, we had these members of Congress who said, I think 
we have to figure out how to make sure every school in this country and every classroom gets connected to the internet, I think it will offer educational opportunity that has been unparalleled in our history. How do we make it happen? And so Senator Rockefeller, who I had the privilege of working for, along with other champions like Senator Olympia Snow, made it possible in the Telecommunications Act of 1996 when they passed the E-rate into law. And E-rate tasked the FCC with setting aside some funds from phone bills across the country to support internet connections in schools and libraries. And I'm awed when I think that that happened 20 years ago. It just, it was just a different time and a different era. And in the time since, it's only become more apparent how visionary that was. And so I worked on the Senate Commerce Committee with Senator Rockefeller and had the privilege of learning a whole lot about this program. And now I get to oversee it at the Federal Communications Commission. But what I also took from Senator Rockefeller is that great programs like E-Rate do not thrive without continuous attention and care. And so when I sit here at the FCC, I think about that all the time and that we've got to constantly be refining this program and making sure it works for the schools that depend on it. So I've only been with AASA a little over 10 years, and I remember just how awesome the 2014 modernization felt. That was one of the biggest advocacy wins in my career. And that was pretty mild when you think about what it was to be a staffer when the program was created. I mean, the E-Rank community still points to the 2014 modernization as a significant, huge win for the program in terms of both policy and funding. Absolutely, so, it was. I mean, totally. The, the magnitude to that, what, what was that like being a, a staffer on the Hill, seeing something come out of nothing and knowing yeah. the potential and then seeing that potential unfold? I think it's amazing. I think that 2014 effort to update this program was just as amazing because we recognized we had this extraordinary tool in the law, but it was stuck in the era of dial-up and figuring out how to make sure that we thought about capacity with broadband, we thought about getting broadband to more schools and updating it with Wi-Fi access and making sure the funding was updated. Those are all just as important. And my perspective is just making sure that from time to time we update the E-rate program so it works for the beneficiaries. And that's something I certainly have focused on as an FCC commissioner and will continue to focus on as long as I sit here. Great. So when I come to the FCC or I think about Commissioner Rosenworcel, I mean, we do think about you and some of your allies up there as true champions of for connectivity and friends and colleagues that we can work with. We work really well with your office. We work with all five offices, but there are admittedly times where other offices may not agree with what we think, but we can work with all five offices. But something that I'm always interested in is a simpler question. What does an FCC commissioner do? What's your typical day? I mean, from my perspective, all you do is geek out on E-rate all day long, and that's really cool. But I know that there's at least three other programs in the Universal Service Fund alone, let alone all of the other aspects of teleconnectivity or broadband or access that you're dealing with. So what's an FCC commissioner's day like? All right. Well, I definitely do spend part of my day geeking out on E-rate, but the FCC has authority over huge part of the digital economy. In fact, by some measure, it's one-sixth of the economy as a whole. So that's everything from broadcast television to broadband. It's how we carve up our skies to make sure your wireless phone works. It's how we make sure that you can get that radio reception that you count on in your car and in your home. 
and it's making sure that satellites are in the skies to deliver all sorts of services that can't be delivered terrestrially and on the ground. So much of modern life involves communications, and the FCC oversees all of communications. Um, I think it's a really dynamic place, and um, I've got this front row seat at the digital revolution. That's how I look at this job. But a typical day, you know, honestly, I don't have too many typical days, but the one thing that's consistent is I, I'm an early riser, and I'm a big coffee drinker, and I come into the office and comb through lots of information and read lots of news and fire up my Twitter account and email. And then um, usually the day brings me something unexpected, which is um, often in the forms of meetings, something breaks involving technology news, or folks from Capitol Hill reach out seeking information about how a program works, how it can be improved, how it can be changed. And um, I, uh, I assure you, I go home every day a little bit exhausted, but it's, uh, it's a good kind of exhaustion because there's so many issues that involve digital communications that affect so many people. And it is really a privilege to be able to sit here and help oversee them. So I think two things you just said really resonated with me. Number one, I want to clarify that I heard correctly. The portfolio that the FCC like oversees is essentially one-sixth of the nation's economy. So well, yes, there are people, yeah, no, there are people who talk about um, communications technology and how it just undergirds everything in our civic and commercial life. And so I feel like this agency is connecting you to everything you care about. And those connections matter, the quality of those connections, the capacity of those connections, what you pay for those connections, how competitive they are, how much innovation is flowing your way. So I think that we have a really impact on the broad, big impact on the broader economy. So um that's a statistic I like to throw around because I think it demonstrates it really clearly. Well, that's a new one to me, but even with our hyper-focus on E-rate and to a lesser extent Lifeline, a sister program, thinking that we are just one small part of what is one-sixth, that, that's an amazing Yeah, right? So I know. Thanks, thanks for I that know. Back away. <laughs> so something I, I think you left out in describing your typical day, I know that we at ASA do a lot to help the FCC commissioners connect with schools and do site visits and speak to practitioners. And I know that your office in particular is really good about getting in front of schools. So could you just highlight for me your top two school-related visits in the last year? Oh, it's like picking among your favorite children. I always feel uneasy when it comes to that. Um, uh, let's see. I had a terrific visit in North Carolina a little while ago, and we spent some time outside of Charlotte working with a math class, and they were trying to figure out the proper angle at which to roll a ball down a hill and doing measurements and collecting data electronically. And I just remember thinking this is so much more interesting than the math classes I recall, where I'd just walk around with a protractor and try to figure out what an angle looked like. It was active. The kids were engaged. They were um, chattering with enthusiasm over the project. And I just felt like this is what digital access can do for learning. That was extraordinary. I'll also talk about a visit I took a little while ago, and that was in Alaska. And I recall speaking to a superintendent who just tried to describe to me how incredible it was for his students who were living in a town that was not on the road system, but the idea that they had access to what's available online had changed their perspective on everything, and that the capacity for learning was no longer constrained by the books they were able to get 
and their ability to actually physically bring materials into the town. I just thought that was unbelievable. And, you know, that stays with me. And um, what stays with me, too, is my own experiences in school and thinking about just how different they can be today when you have access to all of this technology. And if you mix this technology with a terrific teacher, you're really going to have some potent activity in class. And I think that's exciting. And wherever I go in this country, when I see a great teacher mixed with this technology, it, it really gets me um, overwhelmed with enthusiasm for what could be and um, and what could continue to be as long as we protect and uh, this program and, uh, you know, make efforts to ensure it continues. Well, and something I think you're dancing around, but that definitely warrants specific articulation. You talk about ensuring the continuity of it. You talk about access and you're talking about everyone having access. But the cornerstone of E-Rate is actually equity. So if you could speak to that, because I know that's something that all of the commissioners do focus on, but we've seen you emerge as a leader in the importance of equity and helping to level the playing field, particularly as it relates to educational opportunity. And it goes hand in hand with what you just talked about with teachers. So equity yeah. and E-rate, I mean, they both Absolutely. start with E, but they're also both awesome. <laughs> yeah, digital equity is an important principle, and it informs so much of how I think this agency should approach E-Rate. How do we make sure that every school in this country, no matter where they are, no matter who attends them, has access to the online resources they need to help their students succeed? To me, that's what digital equity and the E-Rate program should be all about. And the program was constructed in a very intentional way to make sure that more funding was available to those who needed it most because they had populations that were lower income or the cost of deployment in that community was higher because it was in a rural area. And I wanna make sure that digital equity continues to inform our thinking about this program because if we can make this access uniform nationwide, we can make opportunities more uniform nationwide. I mean, I could end the podcast right there. Anytime you can end <laughs> All with right. a strong note on equity. But we're I know, not, I know. <laughs> I know. Un unlike beauty contestant pageants, I sent you the questions ahead of time. So you have them, and I hope there's good answers lined up, and I do want to share them with all of our listeners. Okay. But that all was right. a great answer, and equity really <laughs> matters here. It so does. thank you for that. In my time at AASA, and it's been a little over 11 years, we have always enjoyed a strong working relationship with the Federal Communications Commission, and your office in particular. I see and have observed strong parallels between Congress and the commissioners in the FCC, at least in the way that you all respond to and rely on engagement with constituents and stakeholders. We know that you as an FCC commissioner don't have constituents per se and that you aren't elected, but I do know how often you and the other commissioners, including Chairman Pai, are meeting with stakeholders. Why is that? Well, we're not going to learn things if we just sit here behind our desks and, you know, comb through some reports that get produced or some legal documents. We've got to get out and meet people where they are. I mean, we've got to go have visits with individuals who explain what it's like to apply to the E-rate program, how a mountain of paperwork can impede their ability to offer connectivity in the classroom, or how they're having difficulty navigating some of our rules. I mean, it's important to have people in our offices and talk to them, but I also think you really do have to meet people where they are and get out of the office and try to understand people on their terms in their locations. Um, I think it's the only way you make good policy, and I think it's really a necessary part of the job. 
I would totally agree, but thank you for that. And I think it's also good for our members, the superintendents, to hear about this because oftentimes when they do practice their advocacy, never mind that this is in addition to the whole, they run a school system during the day, but they're also taking time to weigh in. We don't always necessarily think to take superintendents to the commission when they're here for our advocacy conference in July. And so I think it's worthwhile to flag for our members that if there's a program that you care about in particular that you know is administered by an agency, reaching out to those agencies is oftentimes just as critical as reaching out to the members of Congress who created the program in the first place. So that's true. A, I just want to flag that for our members. Okay. Definitely true. So I want to pivot a little bit. You, Commissioner Rosenworcel, are a female executive. Did you set out on this path? And then follow up to the previous question. Can you think of any pivotal moments or mentors in your path to where you are? And then what's the biggest challenge you face as a female executive and or how that relates to your biggest challenge you face as an FCC commissioner? Oh, such big questions. And it's Women's History Month to boot. So um, I am Accidentally used, on purpose, Commissioner. Accidentally on purpose. <laughs> um, I'm the only woman serving right now at the Federal Communications Commission, and I am used to being the only woman in the room. I mean, um, this mix of engineering and law and policy is something that uh, I love, and uh, I don't think there are enough women who are sitting at the table when it comes to these issues. So I am mindful of that, and I always say, you know, to the women I meet, you need to think about how you can be a mentor, how you can be a sponsor, how you can be someone who brings someone else along. And I also think a lot about what Shirley Chisholm once said. And you know, she was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. Uh, she was from New York. And her quote, and I think about it all the time, is that if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. <laughs> and that's my attitude, not just for women, but for everyone. Decide that you're going to sit at the table and help people make decisions. And if they don't invite you, you're going to find a way to make sure that you're going to pull up a chair and sit there and offer what you have. Because I think we all have ways we can contribute. And we all need to be a little bit more aggressive about making sure that table's inclusive and that um, we make better decisions when we include more people at that table. That's my thinking about it. I will say that um, having grown up in this AASA job, you have actually demonstrated behaviors that I look to and try to replicate. And I, that, that's passive ways that you don't even understand that you're influencing younger female staffers who are working through. But I have two follow-up questions to this. So one, I gave you ahead of time. What are you doing at the FCC? And you hinted at this indirectly, but have you done anything that you can talk to in a more explicit manner about what you do to mentor younger staff and to mentor younger female staff at the FCC? I ran a whole series of lunches at one point, but I also right now, of course, I'm on a podcast, but I started a podcast called Broadband Conversations because I thought I have this great privilege of meeting some really dynamic women who are doing things in technology why don't I go ahead and just start some conversations with them and we can talk about that in a kind of candid way. So I'm proud of having done that. And we've had some really cool dynamos on um, from Maya Wiley, who's a commentator on cable news to Kimberly Bryant, who started black girls code to uh, Senator um, Cortez Masto, who talks about growing up in Las Vegas behind the Consumer Electronics Show and thinking about technology in the context of being from a state like Nevada. I just, um, 
I think it's been a neat way to try to share some of the conversations I have the privilege of having with a broader audience and especially women. And so I think my, my last follow-up question is still relevant here. When you're doing this type of work, there's an element to your personality that is, I'm here to do my job. I have a skill set. I'm passionate about what I do. I know that if I do this input, I should be able to get an output. You're just grindstoning through. That's definitely an aspect of your personality. Yes. It's hugely beneficial to E-rate in schools. But at some point, Commissioner, somewhere along your career path, I'm certain, I'm guessing, that you looked up and you realized, oh, I'm past the point of being just a cog in the wheel here. I'm starting to emerge as a little bit of a leader, and not in an egotistical manner, but in, in a more rightful manner. I'm sure that had to be some sort of gut check, because once you emerge as a leader, particularly as a woman in a male-dominated like area, there comes a sense of responsibility. Do you happen to remember when that moment was or when you first kind of realized, oh, I have the responsibility not only for my career, but for this path so that someone else might be able to follow it in the future. Do you have a moment like that or an opportunity where you realize you were laying a foundation for others to follow? Oh, I don't know that there was a single inflection point, but there's some point at which you say as you migrate through your professional life, you don't just keep on looking up for the people who will pull you along. You recognize you're far enough up that you need to pull other people along too. And I think that that's an important thing that all of us should take into consideration, no matter where we are, that it's not just about the people who will pull us along, but it's also about who we can pull up along with ourselves. And that's something that I hear superintendents talk about, as well as our female superintendents, because the rate at which women reach the superintendency is almost an exact inversion of the rate at which they're in the classroom. So classroom teachers are about 75% female but superintendents are about only 25% female. So how can you look at that, both males and females, to bring up those who are qualified and can be a good leader? And it's definitely a relevant conversation in the educational leadership setting as well. And it's something we hope to see continue to level out a little bit more, but we uh, have some years to, to see that work. Go. Yeah, no, listen, I think we can all make progress. I think we have to be a little intentional about it though. It's not gonna happen without us being intentional. There's no accidentally on purpose with this. This is purposely on purpose. Right. <laughs> this That was a really good side tangent, but people might have tuned in more to hear the commissioner's thoughts on E-rate. And I just have a little bit of drilling down that I want to do on some specific elements of E-rate and connectivity. So when we talk about E-rate and connectivity, we talk about the FCC, but we would be remiss if I didn't talk about how this policy sometimes crosses over to Congress. And I'm getting to one of your professional passions. So let's talk about the homework gap, and I'm uh, going to break this down into five smaller questions, right? I have your interest, so hopefully the okay. readers and the listeners yeah. will be interested too. So really simple questions, bite by bite. How would you describe the homework gap? You know, I always say that when I was growing up, all it took for me to do my homework was paper, a pencil, and my brother leaving me alone. And definitely that last one was the hardest part. <laughs> but today, there's data that suggests seven in 10 teachers assign homework that requires access to the internet. But the FCC data show time and time again that as many as one in three households do not have access to broadband. And to me, where those numbers overlap is what I call the homework gap. And according to the Senate Joint Economic Committee, there are 12 million school-aged kids in every state across this country, and they all fall into this homework gap. And, you know, if you don't have broadband and you can't do your nightly schoolwork, the odds are you are not going to be successful in school, and that's going to have broader consequences for the economy. And so the question is, how do we address the homework gap? 
because if we address the homework gap, we will address the digital divide and we will create growth opportunities for students everywhere. To me, this is the most important part of the digital divide and it's something we really need to organize around and address. Well, and it sounds like another way to describe that is that homework gap is a systemic barrier. You might have a child who is willing and interested in doing their homework, but they go to school with an incomplete because of something they can't control. There's a systemic barrier in that they don't have access at home. Right. And the trickle down of that could be a child who loses confidence or a child who sees their grades fall through no fault of their own. And so this is something where we also appreciate your leadership. Now, could you connect for our listeners more explicitly, how does Homework Gap relate to E-Rate? Yeah, so E-Rate is all about getting connectivity to our schools, making sure it reaches our classrooms so that education in school, in the classroom, can be informed by all the resources available through connectivity and the internet. That's terrific. But what you realize is that the need to connect does not just simply involve in-classroom learning. It's complemented by having access outside of the classroom. And too many students are going without. So I feel like as we manage E-Rate, we have to be mindful that the same students that are served by E-Rate in school may not have opportunities at home, and it's going to impact their ability to do nightly schoolwork. And that's a digital divide we need to address. So if you were able, if you were just able to connect Homework Gap to E-Rate, why would Homework Gap matter to the FCC? Why is Homework Gap relevant to you as a commissioner? You know, um, I think in the end that talent is equally distributed throughout this country, but opportunity is not. And one of the key inputs for opportunity in the 21st century is having access to broadband. So we've got to figure out how everyone has access to it so they have access to 21st century opportunity. And to me, making sure that this communications, this modern form of communications is available no matter who you are or where you live needs to be front and center in everything the FCC does. If homework gap and E-rate are relevant to the FCC, why would you, or why would I, as an advocate for public education, what's the role for Congress here? Well, Congress obviously oversees the FCC and oversees the Telecommunications Act that created the E-rate, so Congress has a really important role. Also, you see really neat legislation, including some bipartisan legislation involving the homework gap, that was an effort that I hope continues to see if we can get Wi-Fi on school buses funded through a nationwide program. Because, you know, especially in rural areas, connecting school buses can help students who spend a lot of time on them download homework and do schoolwork. You know, if they live in an area that doesn't have access, it can make a huge difference. So I see Congress on a bipartisan basis looking at the homework app and trying to come up with solutions. And we're going to welcome all those efforts to try to come up with solutions. They're an important part of solving this problem and closing this gap. So you kind of jumped to my last clarifying question in this conversation on homework gap, though. But what's the path forward for the FCC? the path forward for the Congress, and the path forward for Noelle at AASA and the superintendents here. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to try to address this. So I don't want to act like there's one single solution. I think Wi-Fi on school buses can make a big difference, especially in rural areas. I think 
the FCC, and this is a little wonky, clearing more spaces in our skies, especially in the five and six gigahertz bands for Wi-Fi, could be a really big deal. It would make Wi-Fi available in more places across this country. I also think we need to look at updating other programs like Lifeline that help low-income households get online. Because if we can figure out how to match those programs with the students least likely to have internet access at home, we can make a really big difference in addressing the homework gap. Well, from your lips to Congress's ears to connectivity for our communities, I know that we have our advocacy conference this July, and we are always we are constantly having our superintendents talk about not only how E-rate works for their districts and how it's a benefit, but where there is continued opportunity, and homework gap is one of those ways. And we hear the superintendents talk about ways that they're using local dollars to do some of this, but also how they would be able to use E-rate dollars if some of those could be freed up to be used for some of these either Wi-Fi on buses or routers on buses that get left in communities to help with the homework gap. It's definitely something that they have a lot of interest in, and we'll be circling back to it this July with this year's advocacy conference. Great. That said, while the bulk of our FCC fund is and always will be E-rate, there are two other programs that this AASA department monitors from time to time, Lifeline and Educational Broadband Services. This will be a bigger new item for our listeners. It's not something we talk to them about a lot, so I do want to take some time here. So my first question to you is, what is Lifeline and why would education groups care about the program known as Lifeline? Uh, sure. Uh, so a bit of history probably would help. The Lifeline program got its start back in 1985. You know, that was when President Reagan was in the White House, and nearly all communications involved a landline with a curly cord leading to a handset. Uh, and what it did was it cut the cost of basic telephone service for low-income households, because the idea was no matter where those households were, it would help their residents build their lives, seek jobs, seek out health care, and provide for their families. But keeping people connected with basic telephone service was important. And, you know, it was a good idea back then, and it's still a good idea now. But basic telephone service is, last, is like the last generation's connectivity challenge, and dial tone in the digital age is really broadband. So at the end of the last administration, the FCC actually modernized the Lifeline program to make it more possible for the program to support either voice service or data service and broadband. And I thought that it was really thoughtful reform and it could especially help low-income households with students who are suffering from the homework gap. I, um, I regret that with the start of the current administration, my colleagues backtracked and decided to slash this program. I, uh, I think that's a mistake and I am uh, gonna certainly press them to continue to rethink this program and identify how it can be used to address the digital divide and help close the homework gap. I still think there's potential in the Lifeline program, and we're going to have to figure out how to use it in a way that um, helps more students in more places. Well, I think you touched on exactly why AASA was peripherally monitoring this, because there's an important history between, or I guess there's an important history on the relationship between the four programs of the Universal Service Fund, right? So there's the four programs. And typically, AASA engages only on E-rate, and our basic practice was stay in your lane. And part of that practice was, hey, there's funding specific to E-rate. Don't be predatory in going after money that's marked for Lifeline or the other programs, and they generally won't come after yours. 
But with this modernization for Lifeline and the opportunity to see Lifeline modernized just like E-Rate was to support broadband to a needy community, we saw strong parallels for exactly what you just talked about and the opportunity to have not just children have internet access at home, but also parents. I mean, in the, the 1980s, you used a phone to call in for an interview, but now you use the internet. And so we did vary from our lane a little bit because we were looking at the Lifeline program as something that could be complementary to school. But like you said, we're in a holding pattern right now because those permissions were temporarily rescinded. Uh, but this is definitely something we would flag for our members and a workaround that we would love to see come back to actual consideration. Yeah, me too. We're going we're gonna to keep working on it. I'm, I'm not stopping. I think the Lifeline program has huge potential to help with the homework gap. And I think we have to keep up the pressure to make sure that we have more modern reforms of that program going forward. Well, I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot is all of the universal service fund programs are community programs. Yes, E-rate is in schools, but how many E-rate sites are open up after hours? And we talked time and time again about the coal disaster in West Virginia, and it was the schools who had E-rate connectivity who had the bandwidth to support the media coverage, and they were able to open up because the program had been tweaked a little bit to allow after-hours community access. E-rate is right. a community program. So with Lifeline. And I think sometimes, even though we try to stay in our lanes, that is a missed critical messaging opportunity that this is, a, all of these actually benefit the whole community. I mean, that's a little bit of job security for both you and me, but it's critical <laughs> to the work of our schools, right? It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So now I want to geek out even more, and I want to talk about educational broadband services. And for some perspective here, I've been at AASA so long that this was my first lobby issue. And it was so long ago that it was still known as Instructionally Televised Fixed Services, or ITFS, back when I filed the initial comments in 2008. We are still waiting for a final decision here, Commissioner. So yeah. at the super top level, though, could you explain what EBS is, what its original education function is, what's currently being considered, and then do tie it into some of your thinking on what an opportunity is for it to continue to benefit education. Yeah. Um, so just like with Lifeline, let me take you back with a little bit of history. And this one is older. It's, um, it takes you back to the Kennedy administration because that's when television was the new, new thing. And the administration thought that it would be neat to figure out how television could be used to broadcast educational content. And so licenses were given out to schools, not every school, but a few schools in different places across the country. And you know what? It turned out that school superintendents, teachers, administrators, well, they were spending a lot of time teaching students in classrooms and figuring out how to run a television station on the side was not necessarily in their wheelhouse. So most of the spectrum just it laid fallow, didn't get, didn't get wildly used by too many entities that had these licenses. But then in 2004, the FCC decided to update it. And one of the things it did was it just renamed it the Educational Broadband Service. And it let some schools lease this spectrum out to some wireless providers. So some schools held on to it, didn't do anything with it. Some leased it out to wireless providers. And a handful started building out broadband networks that really help address the homework gap. But when the agency took a fresh look at it last year, they said, well, what should we do going forward? Maybe we should just auction off the remainder of these licenses. Maybe we should collapse this educational purpose. 
And I thought, how do we honor what the Kennedy administration was trying to do, which is figure out how to have, have schools have this resource, but do we do it in a modern way? And I thought, first and foremost, you've got to protect any school that's using it right now to create some kind of broadband network. Absolutely, there are schools that are doing that in Virginia and California, and we want to protect them. But I also thought, to the extent that these licenses are not being used, we could offer those schools the opportunity to sell it back to the FCC. And when they did, they'd be compensated. And then we'd take all those licenses and auction them off to wireless providers, and they could raise billions of dollars. And then we should use that fund to help address the homework gap nationwide, not just in those schools that brought licenses back to us, but all across the country. I think those billions could make a serious dent in the homework gap. And so I hope that's a conversation we can continue to have, because this resource has the potential to help more students, and I want to figure out how to do it. And I know that your proposal for EBS isn't exactly aligned with what we've talked about, but it serves very similar purposes and that it preserves the education focus of this program. We're getting realistic about was it being used for educational purposes or was it being used as a revenue stream and trying to be fair about that for the broader market as well. This is definitely something that quite candidly, I'd be happy to see the EBS rule change closed. It's been 11 years. Like, let's just bring this to an end and see what we can actually implement in terms of programmatic changes. So I won't go so far as to ask you to put a date on this because it's been 10 plus years, but we, we will be waiting here, not holding our breath, but waiting to see what some of the opportunities are for EBS. That sounds good. So I want to be mindful of your time, Commissioner, and I see where we are on my officially running time clock, but I want to close with two easier questions. So, okay. well, maybe not. But if you weren't an FCC commissioner, what would you wake up tomorrow huh. as your alternative career? Oh, my goodness. I don't know that I have an answer, but I can tell you this. Um, I have one sibling, and he is a rock musician, and I'm a regulator. So my parents get to say they have a rocker and a regulator as children, um, <laughs> uh, which is probably unique in the world. But uh, I guess I just want to figure out how to leave some impact. Uh, how are we going to make the world a little bit more just going forward? Uh, no matter what I do, I think that's the thing that influences influences my professional life most. Well, I, I think I can say without hesitation that you at least did some of that with the 2014 modernization. But if you want to keep going <laughs> above and beyond, we, we are here for that. Okay. okay. We are ready to do that list. Okay. And then on a much happier final note, Tell us your favorite career memory, and this could be at the FCC or in your entire professional career. What's the moment that takes the cake for you? Uh, there are a bunch of them, but why don't I give you one that's a little um, a little focused on schools and students. Uh, two or three years ago, I was with Senator Udall in Hatch, New Mexico. And that might sound familiar because it's a place that produces um, some really iconic chilies that are used in Mexican food, hatch chilies. It comes out of the dry, dusty soil there. It's a really rural community. It's um, somewhere between Las Cruces and Albuquerque. And in any event, we went and visited the school there, and we sat down with a high school football player named Jonah. And Jonah described how when he played football for his team from the high school, he would get on the bus and load all of his equipment on, and they would ride for an hour or an hour and a half out because look, they were in a rural area to find a team to play. It took a long time and he would go and he would play them. And then because he didn't have broadband at home to do his schoolwork, 
he would sit in the school parking lot in a pitch black because there was a Wi-Fi signal there. And it was the only place he had to do his homework. So late at night, after all those games were over, he would sit for hours in the school parking lot to complete his homework. And I just remember thinking, this is a kid with extraordinary grit. He's going to be successful wherever he does, wherever he goes. But it really shouldn't be that hard. We have got to figure out a way to connect every student. And in the aftermath of meeting Jonah, I actually wrote an editorial piece with Senator Udall, and he later introduced a bill involving Wi-Fi on buses. And I think about him more than he probably would ever remember right now, but just what it took to do basic schoolwork and how much better we can do. That stands out. And I can count a handful of times that I've heard you relay this anecdote, and I, I've seen how the policies you advance and the thinking you do reflect the impact of Jonah's story and Jonah's reality. So thank you for sharing that. And it, it's definitely something that you have turned to again and again. I also want to say thank you, Commissioner, for taking time to join us today. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a sitting commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission join us on our little public education policy pep talk podcast to sit down and have a conversation so that our superintendents can see not only the power and dynamic force that comes with being an FCC commissioner, but the passion and substance that is behind the work you do, the effort you put in, the policy you can impact, and what it means to our nation's schools. So oh. on behalf of the ASA and our superintendents, thank you for taking time today. Thank and you, Noel. To you're very welcome. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today for listening to us talk about all things e-rate and connectivity and as a reminder our distinguished guest today was federal communications commissioner jessica rosenworcel an accomplished education advocate fierce fiercely passionate for all things related to connectivity and broadband with more than two decades of experience she is a longtime friend to aasa and we look forward to many more opportunities to talk with and work with her thank you again commissioner and thank you, listeners, and we look forward to chatting with you again in future episodes of the Pep Talk podcast. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.